Good morning, y'all. It's Baptism Sunday. <laughs> I'm so excited. Welcome to our continuing of our series known as Done, a study through 1 John, a letter that has already taken us through some interesting and difficult subjects thus far. As we begin today, I want to point out something. I have a photo that's in my living room, and it's a photo of photos. All right, are you ready for this? All right. So, aw, um, I have five children. Uh, their names are Reagan, Lorelai, Evie, Boston, and Finley. And as you look at these photos, this is uh, on our wall, and these are all five of our children at six months old taking essentially the same photo. All right? Now, if you notice, there's a bit of a family resemblance. <laughs> so, quiz time. If you know our family, if you know my children, which one do you think is which? All right, so the one in the top left-hand corner, who do you think that is? Okay, all right. Who do you think the one in the top that's barely, you can barely see is? Throw, yell out a name. Right, okay. The one on the far right? Evie, okay. The one down here? Lorelai, okay. And the one on the far right? Finley, okay, that's good. Now, to be fair, the only people that have ever gotten it right on the first try are the Rileys and Janet. Literally, we're the only people to ever get it right the first time. So I'm going to help you now that I actually am confused and can't remember. Wait, wait, wait. Boston's on the far left. Evie's at the top. Reagan's on the right. Lorelai's on the bottom left. And of course, that's Finley because she still looks exactly the same but with a golden mullet. All right. So, again, I want you to know that we have some strong genes and we have family resemblance within our household. <sighs> and today we're going to talk about the family resemblance that we have as children of God for those who have believed. Now, today is a bit of the second part of a two-part series from last week as John continues this thought of not being influenced by false teachings, heresy, and those who teach such things, which he called the Antichrist. And what was the teaching of the Antichrist? Listen to how John explains it in 1 John chapter 2. Who is the liar, he says? It is who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Now, John did not want people who are included in Christ, people that have believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who are part of the church of the living God, to buy into or be persuaded by and believe that Jesus is not the Christ, not the Christ. And while there are many who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, or really, let's be honest, don't really care if he is or not, John had fierce language and opposed the actual teaching that Jesus wasn't anything short of the Messiah. And rightfully so. John had walked with Jesus. This John had learned from Jesus. John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John saw Jesus perform many miracles. John saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. John was asked to take care of Jesus' mother after Jesus was sent to the cross. John mourned his friend and teacher as he was killed for the sins of many. John personally saw Jesus alive after Jesus had died. John talked it and ate and continued to learn from Jesus after he had died and risen from the dead. 
John was told to be Jesus' witness and share the truth of the redemptive work of Christ, which is the gospel. John was present when Jesus ascended back to heaven. John had his life radically changed by Jesus and knew that one day Jesus would come back and John did not want anyone teaching anything that contradicted the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So John clearly described as he wrote that letter, the book of John, which we studied as a church a while back, he wrote in the gospel according to John this in John chapter 20, describing why he wrote the letter in the first place. He says in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in God's plan, your faith in Jesus is greater than your accomplishments. Let me say that again. In God's plan, your faith in Jesus, your believing that he is the Christ, is more important than anything you accomplish in your good deeds or your righteous acts or what you attain. And there is the rub. We are people who want to make a name for ourselves. We want attention. If we're really being honest, we want glory. And God took on flesh, dwelled among us, so anyone who would believe would find life, true life, eternal life, in the name of Jesus. Now, this passage today is a bit of an interchange, like on freeways. We have been driving on the road of this warning where John last week was telling those who are Christians, those who are found in Christ, that they do not need to believe heresy. They do not need to be swayed by the teachings of the Antichrist. And next week, we are going to discuss the Father's love and that he calls us children of God. But today, we drive through, if you will, the interchange of, if you are a believer in Jesus, of whose we are and what that means because our anointing, our indwelling, means something for the believer that we ought to pay attention to. So we're going to continue in 1 John 2 verse 26, which Raymond read. Here's what it says. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Much of John's letter to the church in Ephesus, that's who he's writing to, is a warning because of the heresy that had been outside and now is inside the church community. And honestly, it still continues to this day. So John warns the church, both in Ephesus in the first century and even in Santa Clara in the 21st century. And much of what we intake and experience in this life, honestly, I just wanna be real with you guys, much of what we experience attempts to lead us astray from the gospel. So hear me, I am not the type of guy that says, you know, you just need to stay in your house. Stay away from all those pagans. Stay away from all those non-believers. No, no, no. But you have to be equipped with the truth of the gospel in order to know the difference when untruths, or as John so subtly calls it, lies from the liars attempt to lead us astray. So one of the things we talk about a lot at COV is spiritual growth. We talk a lot about spiritual growth, Christ-likeness, and our spiritual development, if you have said yes to Jesus, is important, not because it saves you, because of what you do does not save you, or Neither does your spiritual development, your spiritual growth, does it prove that you are saved, but because it is a byproduct of your believing 
It is a byproduct of your anointing, as we talked about last week, because the anointing is what? The Holy Spirit, who resides in those who have believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on behalf of sinners, which we are if you've committed to Christ. And so John is continuing this thought, this explanation of why Um, of why we do not have to be led astray. We do not have to believe in a false gospel and a false Jesus. And he explains to us why and how that is possible. So verse 27, as for you, John writing to the church says, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. We have one verse that an entire series could be taught on. But because of time, and because I spent way too much of your time last week in the prior passage, I'm going to do my best to make this clear, and I'm going to make this quick. John's speaking to those who have remained in the community, that are still believers, who are believers, those who have continued to abide in fellowship of the believers, meaning they're continuing to have relationship with God and relationship with one another and with the Son and the Father. They have been anointed. And what does that mean? It means the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit resides in us, the believer. So as a believer, as a child of God, we are indwelled with God the Spirit, and that is something that each of us that share in Christ share together. And then John says, you do not need anyone to teach you. Ah, my brain. I have heard this verse misinterpreted something fierce. Here is what John is not, not implying. Because you have the Holy Spirit, you do not need to learn from anyone else in the faith or be taught because you are spirit sufficient in everything you currently know about scripture. This is not what he's saying. God and his work is complete as if you were downloaded all you needed to know like Neo in the original Matrix when he said, I want to know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. Do you guys remember this? Okay, I remember this. This is my generation. But instead, John, coming out of the context of letting the believers who have not walked away, and remember what we said last week, from a placebo version of the faith, John points out that these believers do not need to have anything taught to them rather than the truth of the gospel. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder how you hear what I just said. Do you think what John means is that all you need to know is the gospel? Well, yes and no. The gospel, the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of sinners, is what we need to remember and focus our attention on. That's why we preach the gospel uh, as we preach the Bible, and we preach the Bible through the lens of the redemptive work of Christ. And it is, but understanding the depths of God's character, reading the Bible, trying to know more about who he is and the way he grows us, is not by just knowing one thing. Knowing that that one thing is our focus and the filter make everything else about God richer. It makes everything about God deeper. But for the person that thinks, well, I believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, so I need nothing else, 
I don't think you realize that the message actually means that you continue to believe and understand this even better as you follow Jesus. See, the gospel of grace has prepared a way for us to grow in our Christ-likeness by being doers of the word because Jesus gave us an invitation to follow him. So while John says we don't need anyone else to teach us, he is not referring to our ability to grow spiritually, but he's pointing out that those who have been teaching heresy, that Jesus is not the Christ, we need not to learn anything from them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit resides in you and will point us to the truth, which is found where? In the book that the Spirit ultimately wrote. But then, what does this verse say? It says, but as his anointing teaches you about all things. All things, it's an important phrase or really a word. It's just one word in Greek, which means complete. Now, you can take this to mean you have learned all things, which let's, let's be honest, we haven't, I haven't, and I'm assuming you haven't, and we all have much to learn about God. We have lifetimes to learn as much as we can about God, and we have an opportunity every time, and I encourage you, every time you come and open this Bible, not just here, but on your own, you have an opportunity to be changed. You have an opportunity to be transformed. You have an opportunity to obey. And so you and I do not know all things, but we have the opportunity to know all things that we need to know about God, about salvation, about spiritual growth. Where? In the word in which the Spirit wrote. This is what the Spirit of God residing in us gives us the opportunity for. We should never stop learning. We should never stop abiding in God's Word and trusting that He can and will change us as we wrestle with His text. One of my favorite things about this church, let me be real, is that not everyone is 36 years old. Uh, and I'm, I haven't been 36 for quite some time. But listen... <laughs> I love that we are multi-generational. I love that we have different, uh, even as we do baptisms today, we're going to have some people that are uh, uh, knocking on middle age, some people that are below middle age, and then someone who's not even close to a quarter of middle age, okay? And we have a community of people, and especially when those who come up to me who maybe are a little bit more seasoned, if you know what I mean, and encourage me with, Tim, I never saw this before in the Word. That is one of the most encouraging things that I hear because I see people both young and seasoned growing and learning and knowing things they didn't once know. And literally, that is the opportunity that every single one of us has when we open the text. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, and he says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. If you ever start to make the Trinity, now the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you ever start to make the Trinity compete against one another, I think you have completely missed who our God is. The spirit you received is from God is God and is inside of you if you've believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does not contradict himself, but he contradicts our worldly thinking and view of how we think things are and how we think things should be. 
So don't forget, from the Gospel of John, Jesus actually said what the Spirit, who the disciples honestly had not experienced yet, would do. And because we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, church, we don't just assume what a passage means without looking at other Scriptures to give us more of a complete view of the meaning. So here's another passage, John 16, 13. Jesus says this. It's also verse 14. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He, Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So again, if you read that, and maybe you think, I, because I have believed and been given the Spirit, now know all things, I think you have misinterpreted a very, very, very important truth that the Spirit is not pointing to you. The Spirit doesn't exalt you. The Spirit points to Jesus, and he exalts Jesus, and he glorifies Jesus. And that Spirit, that anointing, that seal of our salvation will lead us and guide us in truth in his writings, the Holy Word, God the Spirit, authored through messed up people like us. So the second part of 1 John 2, 27, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. (laughs) I kind of appreciate how John's way of writing explains that the evidence of one who has received the Holy Spirit, received the anointing, is one who remains. He who remains. Anyone get that reference? Loki. Thank you. Thank you. This is what shows that our faith is real and our salvation is true. We remain. We endure. We continue. Those who don't probably aren't. And those who do, probably are. And if the anointing is real, not counterfeit, you will be able to, here's the word we used, abide. Because abiding is not trying, abiding is relying on God. Now, as we read and study these last two verses, because I'm almost done, church, can you believe it? They really ought to be in next week's passage. They really should be. But they're making, uh, and, but instead they're in this chapter, and these two verses really mean more to next week, but I split it up this way, and so did the commentators on the scripture, and so we're going to study these last two verses as they lead into next week. And they talk, but I want you to think about what it means to be a child of God as we read this. Verse 28, now dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. There is that affectionate term, once again, dear children. All that John is sharing is for their good, and out of his love for Christ, by loving them. Continue in him, John says. Remain in him. Abide in him, because when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed at his coming. So I have a question. I need you to talk back to the preacher, all right? Have you ever felt like you had to hide your Christianity? I have. Come on. 
I've had, I felt like I've had to because I was embarrassed or because I didn't want to get into an argument or something. I have felt that way. Now, have you ever felt extremely confident in your faith? Have you ever felt extremely Okay, so a lot of the same hands, the way you feel does not dictate whose you are. The way you feel does not dictate whose you are, but John to people he cares dearly about, these dear children, wants to affirm that their abiding, our abiding, our relying on Jesus does grow our confidence in whose we are and what Jesus can do and the fact that he is and is able to be our identity and our security. Now, your continuing is really the way in which abiding is outwardly seen. Our remaining, our abiding, is not one of just, oh yeah, I'm abiding, but one of actual proven continuous faith. Barbara, I'm so sorry the organ wasn't working. So sorry, because I know that is something you enjoy doing. But I have known this young lady who is um, um, 21 a few times over. And, And when I came to this church... She was part of the people that uh, encouraged me to come here. She was part of the search team. And I met a woman who totally blew my mind and changed my thinking about someone who had been in the church for decades. And I have seen her abide. You know how I know that? Because I've known her for over six years now. I've known the history, but I've actually walked with her. And abiding is something that you can actually see when you find your identity in Christ and you find your security from trusting him. Now, if you have a real relationship with Jesus, a true one, a non-counterfeit one, you will not give up on Jesus or shrink back. But hear me, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be times of lack of faith. But it does mean that the object of your faith is unchanging. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what that word same means in Greek? It means the same. Remembering his unchanging nature means that, we f- that when we feel distant, it's not because of him. But it's because of our lack in focus on him, our confidence in our relationship with him. He didn't change, we do. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And John concludes, or at least uh, we're going to conclude with this verse today, but I want to unpack this a little bit because righteousness, righteous works tend to be misunderstood because our religious worldview tends to dictate what we think the Bible is saying. John says, if you know that he, he is Jesus, is righteous, what does that mean? If you believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ, not just that he existed, but that he is perfection, that he is God incarnate, that he is sinless. He is both fully man and he is fully human, or he is fully God. How do I get that he is fully God and fully man from he is righteous? Because his perfect human record of never sinning and being fully human while also being fully God is what makes his righteousness. His, here's another word for righteousness, just to make it a little easier, his right standing, his perfect moral record is one that you and I need, but it's not one we can accomplish ourselves, but we are grafted into, or we are 
gifted his perfect record because when we come into our relationship with God with a ton of sin, let's be real, and even though God cannot be where sin is because they cannot coexist, light and darkness cannot coexist, God welcomes us in. Why? Because when he looks at the believer, he sees Jesus. So what is righteousness? There was this sermon that I was listening to. It was from 50 years ago, y'all. I was listening to it. Like, my mind is blown that 50 years ago I can listen to a sermon. And it was by Ray Stedman. And here's what he said. Love that satisfies justice, that is righteousness. Love that satisfies justice. So Ray's going to go on, and I'm going to explain it based on his words. But he, came, but he was explaining how Jesus came to show how God would behave. And his behavior is righteousness, which is love that satisfies justice. So here's the example that Ray used. If you are hungry, and I feel sorry for you, and I steal food from the grocery store, and I give it to you, I have manifested love towards you, but I have not satisfied justice with regard to the grocery store. That would be love without justice, and that is an unrighteous act. He goes on, thus, many of the acts we do conform or we attempt to fulfill the law are still unrighteous acts in the sight of God because there is no love in them that satisfies justice. Love that satisfies justice is always unselfish, self-giving, willing to suffer. It's inconvenience, even heartache at times and shame. It is concerned about the need of another and yet concerned that the way that that need is met will not affect others adversely. That is righteousness. It is not merely doing something helpful. There are a great many things done in the world today that are helpful. And we tend to label them as righteous, but they are not righteous. They are helpful. But so much of our activity in helping one another arises directly out of our own self-interest. Many of us would positively be astounded if we could see how much of what we do is really because down deep, somehow, our own self-interest is involved. We get something out of it. Such actions may be helpful, and surely we are grateful for such things, for human life would not be possible if people did not respond in helpfulness, even for causes of self-interest to one another, but they are not righteous deeds. Our righteous acts that are like God's work are not just the thing that we do right in man's eyes, but the motive behind it for the glory of God. So when John says, you know that he is righteous, both that he does all that he, or I'm sorry, both that he, Jesus, does all that is right, and he is the one who offers us this righteousness before God, we then can grasp that John's words about doing what is right, doing a righteous act, not just do-gooding, not just, oh, I did this good thing, so now I think I'm a good person, but behaving in line with how God acts, which is not just the action alone, but the love that satisfies justice. So let's read the verse one more time, and then we'll be done. Every preacher says that, and every preacher is a liar. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So do our good works save us? How many of you uh, had some experience in the Catholic Church? Be honest. 
decent amount of us, right? Do your good works save you? No. But does righteousness save us? It depends. Does your righteousness come from belief in Jesus? Then yes, it does. It is our belief in righteousness in Jesus rather than doing stuff that seems to make us right. Because our righteous acts, the good things that we do with the motive because we want God's glory, they're a byproduct of believing in the righteous one. And his name, say it with me, church, is Jesus. So where do I get this? Well, from the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, my tattoo verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So throughout the New Testament, the writers point to where the righteousness comes from. Paul then says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law by doing the things that I think I should, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I'm not making this up, church. I'm just reading the Bible to you. You are not righteous because you do good things. You are righteous if you believe unto the Lord Jesus. And then John, later on in a passage we'll study in two weeks, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. So righteousness? Righteous. This word, righteousness, is love that satisfies justice. And it is never disconnected from God and his work. Who remembers the what would Jesus do bracelets? Okay, some of you. All right, right on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thanks, Barbara. Yeah. Now, that question on it, it had WWJD. And I get the question. But the question really for most people was, how can I act better? But it's not just would Jesus, what would Jesus do, but it's asking when we do anything to obey God in his word, how did God make us righteous in the first place? The answer, it's through faith in his son. Jesus did it all, and we get the benefit. Scandalous, and it's beautiful. And those who have faith in his son, who have been made righteous, who are able to do righteous acts, they have been born of God. They have been made a child of God. And they resemble God, not through what they do, but what Jesus has done for them. So while my children all look hecka alike physically, children of God, we have been anointed and been given God's spirit, which, which creates a resemblance in all of us as his children, as his church. And we are not only made righteous, meaning we have right standing before God, but we are able to do righteous acts, love that satisfies justice. We get to resemble our God, not to be justified, not to be made a Christian, but because we have been made a Christian, because we have been justified, because we have been born of him. That was a short sermon for me. Worship team, come on up. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. They're going to sing. And after that, I'll invite you to sit.
Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's true, and I thank you, God, that the gospel can continue to make more and more and more and more sense to us. And so as we sing this one song before some announcements, Lord, I pray that the lyrics of the song, the encouragement from the the hearing others sing these truths out loud would be an encouragement to our souls. And I pray, God, for those who are going to be baptized in a few minutes, Lord, and going to share their testimonies at the end of the service, Lord, that you would be giving them a sense of confidence, a sense of encouragement, a sense of love that passes any understanding that we have of human love because that love comes directly from you. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.